begin, and by the way, this is going to be the only slide that's up there tonight. My goal is to have one slide each night just for a title. Um, and one reason I'm standing out here um, is I'll probably do most of the talking, but uh, this is Vacation Bible School. And so feel free if you have a comment uh, or if you'd like to volunteer to read a verse or something, that'd be great. Um, but I want to begin by asking a question, not, not for you to publicly respond to, but just for you to, to think about as we introduce the lesson tonight. So th this question is not one for you to go, ooh, because it's going to be very, very personal. Let me just ask you to think for a moment. What is the thing in your life that you've prayed for the most fervently? If you really stop and let that question just roll around your mind for a few moments, a lot of us are probably really have more than one thing. I'll be kind of a first place tie, you know, but you probably asking a question that personal, if you took it very seriously, it would probably take you back to some very emotional times in your life. I think for a lot of us, it might be something along the lines of, you know, I, I didn't know what it meant to be saved. And so someone please teach me the truth or God, please show me. You know, it may be something along those lines. Um, you know, God, please send something in my, someone in my life to help me know, you know, how to get out of this particular situation. Um, it might be that one of those prayers was because you had someone in your life, maybe yourself, maybe someone else who was going through a time of you know, terrible disease. God, please heal this person or, or let me know what to do to take care of myself um, or, or how to how to deal with that. That's that's possible. Um for someone here who are maybe a little bit younger, might be, you know, I, the most fervent thing in my life was I wanted to find a spouse. And I want to make sure it was a Christian spouse. So, you know, God, please, you know, put me in the right place through your providence. You know, help me to find someone not just who's there, but who is who will help me uh, go to heaven, help me be a faithful Christian throughout life. If we were to ask this question in other parts of the world, it might be to make it through persecution. You know, God, I'm a Christian. I'm trying to live what's you know, in the right way, but this is tough. And just saying I'm a Christian could cost my life, or it could cost me my job, or it could cost me my finances. You know, God, please, you know, either ease this up or give me the strength, the courage to to get through it. When you read through the Bible, you don't just read a lot of prayers, although you do read a lot of prayers. You read a lot of fervent prayers. There are many, many times in Scripture where there are prayers that are from the deepest places in someone's heart. Maybe most famously or infamously, depending on how you want to think about it, of course, is the prayer that Jesus prays in Gethsemane. We sometimes sing a song that I think very accurately words the mindset behind it when it calls that prayer a fervent prayer sent to heaven above that was prayed by a heart that was laden with care. Now, those are words we, we may not use you know, as far as our common language. When we sing those words, the name of the song is literally a beautiful prayer. When we sing those words, we're singing about something that was as deep as possible. Luke, you'll recall, records for us that Jesus was so fervent in that prayer that he sweat as it were drops of blood. Luke chapter 24 and verse uh, 44. And if we were to pass around a sheet of paper or just have people raise their hands or something and say, hey, tell us about the time you prayed most fervently, it can get really emotional real fast. We could talk about you know nights where we just didn't go to sleep or at least large parts of the night. 
Or maybe we spent a day doing, maybe we took a day off of work to do nothing but pray. Um, maybe we talk about the tears. Maybe we talk about those times where we weren't even sure what the words of the prayer needed to be. We just knew we needed to pray. But if you were to read through the Old Testament, you come to the lady named Hannah. And if you were to ask her, what's the most fervent prayer you've ever prayed? I don't know if 1 Samuel chapter 1 would be number one on her list, but I will guarantee it'd be on a short list. Go ahead and open your Bibles tonight to the, the first part of 1 Samuel. Our young people this week are studying four different people from Scripture. And I asked Noah several weeks ago when, when he talked to me about teaching the class and I agreed to do it, if instead of just trying to overview four lives, could we in the adult class just bore down into one life? And he said, I think that'd be fine. And since, if, if you're a guest, we'd say that right now uh, we're kind of in the middle of a series on Sunday mornings and kind of an emphasis right now dealing with families and Christian homes and those sorts of things. I want us to look for the, these four nights at the life of Samuel. And we're going to look at obviously what the Bible says about him. But we want to take some principles from his life that give us some applications and implications for our homes, no matter how those are made up. Here's what I mean. Tonight's lesson is going to deal basically with parenting because we're dealing with Hannah, her prayer, Samuel's young life, etc. But if you think, well, all we're going to talk about this week is parenting. Oh, no. Because one of the beautiful things about Samuel's life is that we know so much about it. This is personal opinion with me. I think Samuel gets shortchanged quite often in Bible school curriculum because he is understandably so overshadowed by the kings that follow him, Saul, David, Samuel, especially the two that he anointed, Saul and David, that we just kind of run past his life to get to the kings. Samuel is a massive figure in the Old Testament. You don't believe me, there's two books of the Bible named after the guy, okay? But he also, he also did anoint those first two kings. He held positions of influence. He held positions of, of, of an understanding with the people. And so I want us to take four, if you want to think of it this way, kind of four scenes from his life this week and look at what the text tells us, but then make some applications. And I'm telling you that because if you're thinking, man, I, I'm raised by kids, they're grown, they're out of the house, I don't have anything with parenting. Folks, we're going to talk about aging this week because we deal with that with Samuel. Maybe my favorite lesson piecing this together is Samuel's retirement speech. I love that chapter where he thinks his personal, his, excuse me, his public life is kind of over. And so he kind of gives a, a retirement speech. It ends up not really being his retirement speech. But this is not just for, quote unquote, mom, dad, and the kids. Tonight's lesson kind of is. But the lessons give us different aspects of a Christian home and different, um, different parts of, of our life. When you think about the lady, and I'm using that word intentionally, the lady Hannah, what a life. We don't know much about her. But we don't have to know much about her to know that she was a wonderful, wonderful lady. I want us to think about the prayer that she prays in 1 Samuel 1. And then the boyhood scene, if you will, from Samuel's life. And I want us from those to, to draw four 
applications for what any of us who are parents should try to want for our children. And if maybe you don't have children, or maybe your children are grown and gone, maybe you've never had children before, these things still apply if you want to encourage those who are trying to raise children. It should be the same kinds of things you should try to encourage those who are trying to raise children to, to do and to pray for and the actions that they should be trying to have. Number one, it's the overarching principle of the whole lesson. Make raising godly children your heart's desire. Make raising godly children your heart's desire. You know, in a lot of ways, we said this, this is going to be the, the overarching um, principle for the entire lesson. Hannah wants a son. There's no way to miss that when you read the opening part of 1 Samuel chapter 1. But it doesn't read as if she, she wants the son to, you know, to complete her family or, or to find fulfillment. It's not that. There might be some of that in there. In other words, there might be sort of a, a secondary or further down the list way she looks at it. But the emphasis is she wants a son so that then that son can serve God. Now we'll talk in a few moments about service specifically. But just for a few minutes, just to kind of set the tone here, let's consider that we need to make raising godly children our aim, or as we called it earlier, our heart's desire. Now there are a lot of things we emphasize with children. As parents, it can seem as if the number of things we want to focus on just keeps growing. If you're a guest and don't know me, we're not too far from our kids being out of the house. Um, we, we, we have a, a daughter who will be a senior next year, a son who will be a junior next year. And the scary part about that is the closer we get to that stage of life, the more things we, we remember that we've forgotten to teach them. And the list that we want them to know just keeps getting longer and longer while the time gets shorter and shorter. And I'm seeing a lot of mm-hmm, mm-hmm from people who still have children at home and people who don't. You get, you get that part of life, right? It's fine if we want our children to be well-educated. It's fine if we want our children to, you know, to, to excel in some particular skill um, that they can de develop to earn you know, a living and those sorts of things. We should obviously care if our kids make the best grades they can or maybe they have a skill they enjoy like painting or playing a sport or playing an instrument. All that stuff is fine. But those of us who still have children at home, need to look at ourselves in the mirror, the mirror being God's Word, and ask ourselves, what really is the number one priority for my children? What is it really? And we can word it a hundred different ways, but it should be something like, I want them to be godly. We can word it many different ways, but that should be the priority. And everything else falls under the umbrella. If I want them to be successful in, in business, that's fine. I want them to be a godly business person. I want them to be godly with finances. I want them to be godly in their hobbies and, and all those other things that fall under that umbrella. But we know that was Hannah's desire for a lot of reasons. But may I suggest to you that not the least of which is what she named her son. What does Samuel mean? They're going, heard by God or heard of God. That E-L ending, L is God. If you were here this morning, we mentioned the here part, the Shema. 
This is not Hebrew. I don't know Hebrew. But you could actually say his name is Shama El. Heard of God. Even in his very name was the desire of this mother. I can't give a list of ten steps to raising godly children. That's not it. But I can do this. I can give one step to making the best effort. Here it is. Filter everything through the lens of godliness. That's the one step. There's a lot of sub-steps under that. But that's really the one step. Filter everything as it pertains to raising children under the through the lens, excuse me, of will this help or will this hinder this child being more godly? We, we can list a bunch of things. Let's give a, a couple of practical things. Okay, is it good for a child to take an online class to get ahead in their college degree? The answer is I don't know, but there is a lens to look at it through. Will the time it takes for them to do that take them away from godly things? See, that's a lens through which to evaluate that simple, quote-unquote, question. That day-to-day question. Is it okay to go on a vacation to this particular place? The answer is, I don't know. But I do know that when we go to wherever it is, we're going to make sure we worship with the saints at that particular location. Because we're filtering our decisions as far as even though it's just common things through the lens of godliness. It has to be our heart's desire. Number two, promote godly service to your children. That's what Hannah vows, isn't it? I love the vow. Look at 1 Samuel 1.11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, literally, Lord of those who march out, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. We won't go to the razor touching the head thing. For those of you who are Bible students, you know, it's a Nazarite vow. You can look at that in the numbers and elsewhere. She's basically saying this is going to be something he's dedicated to for his life and his hair is supposed to be a symbol. That's uh, Samson being the most famous one in Scripture who does the same thing. But to Hannah, the ultimate goal was to have her son serve the Lord. How she was to accomplish that was to place him in the service of the temple. We'll have more to say about that in a few moments. But just think about the kind of heart that that took for her to say those words. From the time he was quite a little boy, he's going to serve God. You don't need me to tell you, but I want to say it just to emphasize the point. We live in times where we're told everybody should serve you. We want everybody to serve me. We're pretty much fed the idea that as long as you're breathing, everybody owes you everything. Right? Now, that's not good, of course. But for our purposes tonight, that's a huge obstacle to try to overcome as we raise godly children when the whole point of Scripture is not serve self, but serve God and serve others. We are trying to completely flip the mindset or go against the flow of a, a, a culture that says everything's about you. When Christianity says, no, everything's about God and serving others to His Lord. It's a totally different way of looking uh, at the world. And so it's quite the contrast. A lot of you know that before I started preaching, I was a youth minister and uh, for about, about 10 years between two places. 
I still love working with young people. Um, I'm glad we have Noah because he actually has energy. But uh, I still love working with young people. I'm glad that here, Noah and the elders want me to still be involved with the young people in different ways, even though I'm the pulpit guy. I love they still want me to, to be involved in different things. But there's, I would say it's a joke, but it's not funny. That's just been true in youth work for decades. And it's the old thing where if you want kids to show up for something, make it a fun thing and not a service thing. I mean, you, you plan a trip to the amusement park or the ball game, you'll have kids who haven't been to the youth group in, in you know a year and a half going, oh, I'm a faithful member, let's go! Right? But the very next night, you plan a service project, oh, we're too busy. If it wasn't sad, it'd be funny. Right? But that's just kind of the way it is. By the way, I'm thankful that's not really the case here too much. Our young people just love being together, period. And that's a wonderful thing. Sometimes, yeah, it is for fun stuff. Sometimes it's service stuff. But here's the great thing. A lot of times, they have fun doing the service stuff. And that's kind of the way it should be. Um, so if you're a guest, it's a good place. Say it. Um, but here's the thing. Building that mindset isn't just up to the elders or the congregation or Noah or whoever. It's up to us as parents. It's up to us as parents to instill in our kids, our children, that it's not about you just getting what you want all the time. It's about you giving. Again, ultimately it's the glory of God, but giving to others. When, when you're having people over for whatever, involve the kids, no matter their age, for preparation. It, it could be as simple as when they're small, hey, would you put the napkins on the table? Or would you help mommy set the table? Or whatever. Don't let them cook the roast. As they get older, maybe let them do that kind of stuff. But but let, let them know that we're doing this to help somebody else. Some, some of you know when uh, our kids were small, uh, on Halloween we took them treating. You're thinking, I thought it was trick-or-treating. No, we took them treating. And what we did was they made, along with Leah, because they were little and wanted to keep our house, they made cookies and that kind of stuff and then took them to widows and to their Bible school teachers and those sorts of things. So they could learn that even on that night, it's not about you first. Now, after they did that, they went and got 700 pounds of candy and you know they were sick for three weeks or whatever. But the, the first thing was, you go serve somebody else first. Um, if, if someone, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a, a, an older member of the church, comes up to your kid and says, hey, could you come to my house Tuesday afternoon and pick up some sticks? I just can't do that. Teach your kids not to ask this, ask this question. Well, how much are you going to pay me? You want to make my skin crawl? Ask that question. Teach them that, yes, I will be there at 4 o'clock. I'll pick up those sticks. Period. Because I want to serve. There's countless ways, but those are some things to keep in mind. But always connected to the fact that this is godly service. We're serving because we want to connect these things to having a heart to serve God. Number three, teach your children to respect Christian leaders. Who's, who's the high priest at the time of Samuel? Eli. Good guy or bad guy? <laughs> yeah, that's the answer. Right? It depends on how you look at it. Do I? Yeah, it kind of depends on the angle you look at it. Right? There's some good qualities about this guy. Not the least of which, he took Samuel under his wing. There's never anything in the text about, oh man, I've got this kid running around the temple while he's driving me nuts. Right? You don't have that. 
And, and there are times where Samuel will give, excuse me, Eli gives Samuel advice. It's wise. It's good. But then you look at his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, he pretty much stunk as a father. And the Bible even tells us, especially later in Eli's life, he even partook of some of the stuff that wasn't right. So it kind of depends on the angle you look at his life you know, at to say, is he a good guy or bad guy? And the answer is, I, I don't know. It depends on what day it was, I guess, right? That's right. And we're going to get to that in one of the lessons that Samuel's sons are not, not, not exactly to be the cream of the crop either. And that's kind of an interesting connection between Eli, kind of his mentor, if you want to think, think of it that way, and Samuel. But here, here's where I want to point out this, this man, Eli. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, you have that account of Samuel hearing from the Lord. And he goes, because at first he thinks it's Eli. Right? Did you call for me? And Eli, I'm paraphrasing, basically says, wasn't me, I don't know what you're talking about. But after a short while, Eli figures out, oh, he's he's hearing from God. And he gives he gives Samuel, here's how you respond. There's never a word about Samuel looking at this guy and going, well, who are you to tell me something like that? How would you know something like that? Samuel knew that Eli, as imperfect as he was, was still God's leader at that time and worthy respect. That is a powerful reminder of something just built within this young man to respect this flawed individual because this flawed individual was, as it were, quote-unquote, over God's people in a religious sense. Think about that in our day and time in, in, in the church. Think about elders. Think about Bible class teachers. Think about preachers. Think about deacons. They're flawed individuals. They, they, they want to do what's right, but they're people. And by definition, they're going to make mistakes of judgment. Sometimes they're even going to sin. But it is absolutely essential that we build into our children the fact that you don't respect the sin but you do still say, this person's trying. This person still is an elder, a preacher, a deacon, a Bible class teacher, whatever, a ministry leader, whatever it happens to be. And because of that, that person's worthy of respect. Where does that start? It starts in the home. It starts with the respect of, look, mom and dad aren't perfect either. But they deserve respect simply because God says they're in charge of the home. I wrote an article a few years ago on our family website. A little bit of pushback for it. The basic article was, I get tired of people saying that you shouldn't be able to tell your kids, you know, you should do this because I said so. And my article was like, yeah, you should. Yeah, you should. And here's the reason why. There are times where God basically says, because I said so. Can someone explain to me why the children of Israel were supposed to walk around Jericho seven times, for seven days, excuse me, and then the walls were going to fall down. The reason? Because God said so. There is no other reason why that should have worked. None. And if we don't build into our children the fact that, that authority is simply worthy of respect, they're going to struggle to respect the authority of God. That connects to the fact they should be able to respect the authority of Christian leaders. Now, if there's a sin or 
you know, error is being taught, that's one thing. But if it's just a matter of judgment, you know, the elders decide to something, I'm not a big fan of it, or, you know, I don't like the way that, you know, Adam dresses or whatever. You know, I don't like how sometimes I don't like how he walks around on Sunday morning and stands still on Sunday night or whatever. It's, it's, it's just just a matter of judgment. Let it go. And teach your children how to disagree without being disagreeable. Number four. Desire that your children will hear from God. I'm using the word hear in an accommodative sense. I'm not saying they're going to get a vision or a dream or God's not going to roll back the clouds and start talking to them. But in 1 Samuel 3, Samuel hears from God. Today, Hebrews tells us, God speaks to us through His Son, through His Word. We understand that. It should thrill us when our children want to know more about God. It should thrill us when a little kid says, would you buy me a Bible? That should be one of the biggest things we ever think about. Mommy, can I have my own Bible? Yes. You better believe it. I, I, I don't care if we've got to sell something to buy it. We're going to figure out a way to get you your own copy of the Bible. Absolutely. It should thrill us when a child says, would you take me to Bible class? We'll figure it out. That should be an absolute thrill for us because they are, as it were, hearing from God. Again, not through a dream or a vision or whatever it is, but through His Word, His inspired Word. In our homes, we do that in a lot of practical ways. One, we're doing even tonight, and we did this morning. Be zeroed in on Bible class. Uh, again, there are going to be more the Central 101 things each night. One of them is going to be about Bible class. I won't give the commercial here, but I want to say, if you're not a member here, sometime this week, if you come back each night, walk the hallways, look at the rooms, but also ask some of the teachers about what we teach. It is the Bible and it is the Bible, and it is the Bible, and it is the Bible. And I'm so thankful to be at a church that puts the Bible in Bible class. And by the way, in vacation Bible school. I'm really thankful for that. But it needs to be where we're there. In, in, in our homes, let's make sure that we regularly have uh, devotion time for you know a, as a family. I'm not talking about a 45-minute sermon. If, if you're a dad in here, and you're like, I, I don't know what to say. I've, I've never even done like a Wednesday night devotional. I can't imagine it a home devotional. Pick up your Bible and just read a favorite passage to your kids. I will, I'm telling you this not to be funny. I'm telling you this to be as serious as I can be. If you will do nothing more than that two or three times a week, you're ahead of probably 90% of even Christian families in this world. If you will just simply read a psalm or a parable or something to your kids a couple times a week, you are miles ahead of most families. Because the kids are seeing God speaks in our home. And when God speaks in our home, we listen. We understand those things. Um, give your kids tools to help. Give them their own copy of the Bible. I, I'm, I'm not against Bibles on the phone or on the tablet. I, some of you will go to Polish in the Pulpit and other places. When I go to, to Polish in the Pulpit especially, I still use my Bible on my phone a lot because I'm trying to carry two or three things. That's one less thing, one less thing to carry. And I'm going from this class to that class. It's kind of easier and that kind of stuff. But I'll just say, this is just me speaking. Get your kid their own copy of the Bible. Because there's something special about this being my Bible. It really is something special about that. It's not a right or wrong thing. Don't you know, start you know, electrocuting me if these lights or anything. But there's something special about this is my copy of the Bible. 
and I can learn. And, and, and then as parents, you know, if you're not as good at this, take them to somebody who is. How, how do I mark something? What are some things right in the margin? Or where, how's some place I can take those? Give them the tools. A lot of them, by the way, are free now online, of course, to do that. But whatever you do, pray that they will thirst to hear from God. Let me close. I'm already over time. And then we'll uh, transition to uh, time for the Lord's Supper. Stuart, you have that this evening, I believe. Okay. Let, let, me, let me close. Let me give you eight words. Two four-word sentences. We love our children. Our world does not. The world wants our children, but the world does not love our children. How do I know that? I know that because the world does not want what's ultimately best for our children. Our world wants them to think about themselves. Our world wants them to be self-absorbed. Our world wants them to be distracted from eternally important things. Our world wants our kids to just be entertained and coddled and think that life is all about them. But we who are Christians know better. But we have to work as if we know better. We need to be sure that we are, <coughs> excuse me, that our laser focus is on teaching our children to honor God with our lives. And that's going to be uncomfortable at times. That's going to be really hard at times. That's going to lead to rejection at times. And that's just for us. But it's also true of our kids. We will watch our kids get left out sometimes. We will watch our kids have their feelings hurt for doing what's right. We will watch our kids wonder and ask the question, why do my friends get to do this and I don't? And we'll wonder, is it worth it? Heaven says it's worth it. It's worth every tear. It's worth every frustration. It's worth every difficulty. And it's worth every ounce of energy we've got for the child for whom we pray.